0: This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to The Made For This Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Made For This Podcast. My name is Chloe, and today we have a really special treat for you. We are going to give you guys the first two chapters of Jenny's new book, Untangle Your Emotions, audiobook. And you guys, I think Jenny's audiobooks are some of the best out there because she narrates them herself. So we wanted to just give you a little preview of how amazing and special this message is. We all need it. Emotions are difficult, no matter if you consider yourself a feeler, a fixer, a stuffer. We all have different stories, and this book is for all of us. So get ready, sit back, and enjoy these first two chapters of Jenny's new book, Untangle Your Emotions. Chapter one, where did that come from? This past year, our oldest daughter, Kate, got married. And truly, everything about that day was dreamy. The weather was gorgeous, the venue idyllic, and everywhere I turned, I saw faces belonging to our most beloved people. It was spectacular, every bit of it. My husband, Zach, and I love our son-in-law, Charlie. We approve wholeheartedly of this match. So much expectation, so much gratitude, and so much joy. And then, post wedding, my heart was pretty quickly wrecked. For all the good that a child's wedding brings, there is a bad that nobody warns you about. Because the moment Kate left our nuclear family, the one made up of Zach and me and her brothers and sister, she and Charlie became their own little family of two the audacity. And it gets worse. Kate and Charlie started telling Zach and me about ridiculous dreams they were dreaming. Like most people in their 20s, using words like adventure and travel and fun. All words I had said to my mom and dad, what feels like not so long ago. Over dinner one night, my daughter had the dang nerve to look at her father and me and with all the casualness in the world, say some stupid sentence that included a whole bunch of words I didn't really hear and three phrases I totally did. Out of the state, maybe out of the country. Not forever, of course, but for a few years. Wait, what? A season of adventure? A season of adventure apart from me? The walls of the room in which we were eating began closing in. My chest, which moments before had felt right size for my body, was now two sizes too small for my heart to take a beat. My airways constricted. What fresh hell had I tumbled headlong into? My reaction was not rational. I know. I realized it in my head, but something bigger than knowing the right answers was happening to me. I played it cool. I pasted a grin on my face. I held eye contact with my child. Nice and steady, Jenny. That's it. That's it. And I focused on inhaling calmly. This wasn't about me, and I knew it. Equally true. This was absolutely all about me. Thankfully, I didn't erupt that night. I didn't come apart in waves of tears. I didn't faint or fume or fall apart. I made it through in one piece. But the following week and the week after that and the week after that, in casual conversations with Kate, the subject kept coming up. Then again, my chest and airways told me that this wasn't nothing. No, no. This, I knew, was a thing. Cognitively, I understood that I wanted Kate and Charlie to go and create and live their own beautiful story, whatever that meant. So why couldn't my body and heart catch up? Can't stop the feeling. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a disproportionate emotional response to a situation that shouldn't have affected you in such a dramatic way? Let me ask you one more. Have you ever stopped to think about what the reason for that response could be? There are always things beneath the things. We are not simple creatures. Even those of us determined to live steady unemotionally charged lives are shaped by a million small moments that stay with us. Those moments shape who we are, and how we think, and how we react, and yes, how we feel, in a given moment to a given circumstance. Among the many things I've been learning and want to share with you in the chapters to come is that those revved-up reactions tell a story, a story about something we've lived, they point to a deep seated something that has gone unaddressed in our heart. We experience something impactful. We react to that thing by stuffing our feelings or minimizing our feelings or ignoring how we feel altogether. Then something else comes our way, something that's not even a big deal, and we lose it. We unload on a loved one. We catastrophize. We ugly cry, heaving until we can barely breathe. And then, We regret what we've done. Why did we freak out? Why did we demean our spouse? Why did we shame our kid or yell at our roommate? Why did we make that insane assumption and blame and threaten and walk right out the door, slamming it behind us as we left? What was all that about? What was underneath it all? Short answer a lot. As the science and the Bible will show us, somewhere along the way, maybe from things I heard at church or just from growing up. I learned I wasn't supposed to be sad or angry or scared. I was supposed to be okay. So I needed you to be okay too. Or maybe it's just because I hate the feeling of being out of control. And I believe those feelings were too scary. And sitting in the hard felt, well, too hard. Every time I experienced sadness, fear, anger, emotions, I've been conditioned to not want to feel. My brain immediately moves to fight off the feeling, much like my immune system takes down a virus. My brain attacks the feeling, judges it, condemns it, and tells me why I shouldn't feel it at all. It tells me that it is all going to be okay. It barks out all these orders about what I need to do so I can finally stop feeling the feeling. Worse still, sometimes, When you share with me your sadness, fear, or anger, I'd do the same stupid thing to you. I'm sorry. It's wrong, and I'm sorry. Your feelings, my feelings, are not evil things that need to be beat back. Feelings can't be beat back, by the way. Even if you're the most effective stuffer ever to live, the very best at stuffing feelings way down deep, so far down, you believe they can never be found, I'm here to tell you those feelings don't go quietly. The people who know you know that they're there. If you're honest, you know they're there too. That hint of rage you felt toward your dad, the fear of rejection you felt with your family, the striving that has exhausted you at school or work, the jealousy that keeps creeping in whenever you're at that one friend's house, the bitterness that flickers when you talk about why you don't have kids yet, the despair you feel in your gut every time you think of the person you love buried underground. I know you think you packed all those things safely away in a box so that you won't have to see them again. But inevitably, they pop out at unexpected times, like over a lovely dinner when your daughter is just dreaming beautiful dreams. Whatever the triggering situation, at some point, The next day or the next week or sometime even later than that, you look back on the catalyst and on your response thinking, why on earth did I say or do that? You wonder, how on earth did those feelings sneak up on me? You wonder why they didn't play fair. The truth of the matter, they were playing fair, or playing predictably anyway, because those feelings are tangled up with something very real in your past or present. Something that absolutely is a big deal to you, whether or not you're ready to admit it. Feelings can't be beat back. They can't be ignored or dismissed. They are trying to tell us something. The fear behind the fear. I wanted to show up better for Kate. So, in that pursuit, I shot straight with my counselor about what was happening in my heart and body every time the subject of my daughter leaving came up. He asked, Jenny, when did you first experience the feeling you feel every time Kate talks about moving away? My mind flashed to a scene. Have you ever had that happen? I wasn't trying to think of this particular memory, but in one millisecond, there it was, demanding to be seen. I was standing in the long, cold hospital corridor, just outside my husband's room, silently begging God to spare his life, despite some pretty grave reports. This isn't human. The doctor had said to me, after reviewing Zach's blood pressure results, humans can't sustain life with blood pressure this ridiculously high. My husband had suffered a small stroke and was unable to say the right words. Although eight highly trained, highly pedigreed doctors had gathered around Zach, nobody could determine why his blood pressure continued to soar. Please pray. That's the text I was sending to everyone who cared about us. As I paced those sterile halls, please pray, please pray. Please pray. Weirdly, I held it together emotionally while Zach lay in that hospital bed. Have you ever heard the theory that the reason we go into something of a state of shock whenever crisis hits is so we don't utterly and completely melt down? It's like our brains or bodies, or a combination of our brains and bodies, look at the situation and mutter, listen, if we don't all but shut her down, she'll never get out of this alive. For the days when Zach was stuck inside a hospital, my mind was clear, my memory was sharp, my reflexes were quick, and miraculously, I didn't crumble under my fears. But there's a second part to that theory about the protective shock that covers us when crisis initially hits. After about 48 hours, that covering disappears. I can vouch for this part of the theory because on day three, just as Zach was coming home, I completely lost my cool. Zach's doctors had discharged him Not because he had recovered, but because, except for a few meds, there was nothing they could do. His blood pressure wasn't yet even close to being within the normal range. But it would take time, they said, and lots of rest. He's a walking heart attack, one of the doctors had stated, with no hint of compassion. He's got to rest until this BP goes down. Zach knew this. I knew this. Still, we couldn't relax. How is someone supposed to be calm After being given such stressful news, rest, relax, stay calm. He'd try and try again. For my part, I felt increasingly consumed by anxiety. He can't rest. He can't relax. He can't stay calm. I'd lie in bed every night beside my husband, carefully waking nearly every hour so I could lay a hand on his chest, check for a steady heartbeat and the rising of his breath, and exhale relief each time I felt them. The first hospital stay led to several others, all connected by a sad strand of doctor appointments where Zach was tested, assessed, cautioned, counseled, and medicated further. I'm fine, Zach would insist whenever he was asked, even though clearly he was not fine. At some point in this agonizing process, my husband looked at me as if it was finally hitting him and said, this is pretty serious, I guess. Um, yeah, you think? Meanwhile, despite my best attempts to block fear out, it was staking a claim on me. He's going to stress himself out. He's going to stress himself out and have a heart attack. He's going to stress himself out and have a heart attack and leave me all alone. And there it was. I wasn't afraid simply of Zach's medical condition. I was afraid of losing my best friend, losing the life I knew, losing the caretaker of all of us. I was afraid of being left alone. My response to my counselor's question, when did you first experience this feeling? was helping me understand that without my being aware of the connection, every time Kate talked about moving away, about leaving me, my brain or heart or soul, or whichever part of me holds my feelings, was subconsciously zooming back to that first hospital stay and the weeks that followed it, to the time when I was just sure I was losing Zach. Because of my daughter's four season adventures, I'd be abandoned all over again. Something deep inside me believed that not only was I destined to lose Zach very soon, but I would now lose Kate soon too, and Charlie, my new son-in-law, and probably our other three kids, Connor and Caroline and Cooper, as well. If adulthood meant that one kid left, wouldn't they all? My subconscious imagination was going all those places as I sat across from Kate at a simple fun dinner so I couldn't breathe. Yep, everyone would leave me. I'd live the rest of my life alone. Dramatic, I know. If I had been conscious of it at the time, I would have rationally decided not to spiral and assured myself that I wasn't losing everyone. But emotions often don't play rationally. They show up in a blaze of glory, asking for something. I was tangled up in knots by a fear I hadn't fully acknowledged and didn't totally understand. The question was, what was I supposed to do with this feeling? Chapter 2, All Tangled Up. I should mention that the mere fact that I was aware that Kate's dream of adventure was causing uncomfortable emotions, and that I had paused to process why, it was a bit of a breakthrough for me. If you've read or listened to any of my other previous books, you're probably accustomed to the fix-it vibe that flows through much of my writing. I'm a fixer at heart. I love to solve problems, whether for myself or others. I enjoy asking a thousand questions to get to the bottom of what's really going on with someone and then lay out a useful, hopefully not scary, Bible-inspired solution for helping them get unstuck. Seriously, if life is like a school, this process is like recess for me every time. Helping people fix their problems has been a key motivation behind many of my previous books. And it's also why I founded If Gathering, a nonprofit organization committed to helping people grow in their faith and freedom. For much of my adult life, I've loved this aspect of my personality, of my approach. I thought it was amazing. I mean, I think you'd agree that life is full of problems. Who doesn't have problems? And if problems abound for us all, then what's better than to have a helpful fixer around? I considered my fix-it nature a gift, a spiritual gift, in fact. But over the past few years, as I've been on this journey toward untangling my own emotions, I've come to see things in a very different light. The truth is that I've been so busy fixing stuff that I've neglected the feeling part of me. Like I said earlier, every time I experience sadness, fear, anger, any undesirable emotion, my brain would immediately click into fight mode, determined to fend off the feeling. I would line up my thoughts to attack the feeling and then condemn it explaining to myself why I shouldn't feel it at all. I was swift, and I was efficient. Who needed feelings anyway? I haven't given myself permission to feel what I actually feel. I haven't given the people in my life permission to feel what they actually feel. It turns out you can't feel feelings while you're preoccupied with fixing them. Recognizing this truth about myself has raised some questions for me. Like, why am I so quick to fix situations and adjust circumstances? and alter my general reactions to life instead of feeling the feelings these dynamics bring up? Why do I consistently leapfrog over-assessment straight into activity? Why am I seemingly allergic to introspection? What am I afraid of finding there? Can you relate? If I may be a bit presumptuous, I'll whisper this to you right now. You can relate. I know it. I'm certain you tend to resist examining your feelings too. Part of being human is being tempted to solve problems rather than sit with them. It's what's kept us alive in eras past. If a wild boar is on your tail, you better start running, right? No time to contemplate what happens in your heart and mind as fear rises in your chest. So we learn to run. We learn to flee. And we kept running. No time to sort out how we feel about things. Lest that boar close the gap and mow us down. Like I said, I deeply valued this fix-it approach, which I saw as something very helpful about myself. But over the past few years, as I've been learning to listen to what my emotions are trying to tell me, I've discovered a truth that shifted everything for me. Feelings were never meant to be fixed. Feelings are meant to be felt. For so long, too long, honestly, I didn't grasp this. I didn't like what emotions did to me. They were the reason my stomach felt sick when I was nervous or scared. They were the reason my chest tightened when I was reminded that the future was beyond my control. They were the reason tears would spring to my eyes whenever one of my kids took a harsh tone with me. And if they were to blame for so much discomfort and pain, why would I give them license to come in and just do as they pleased? My feelings were trying to tell me something important, but I thought they were attempting to take over, and I wasn't about to let them take control. Your feelings aren't trying to control you. They are trying to tell you something. My fix-it approach kept me safe, or so I believed. This approach allowed me to run from my feelings and help those I love run from their feelings, too. And for quite some time, this strategy has worked. I learned to deflect with the best of them. I learned to deny how I truly felt. When someone at work said something that hurt me, I would pretend I was fine and yet dwell on it every night as I was falling asleep. When my kids came home from a hard day at school, I would try to get them to remember the good things that had happened instead of sitting with them in the pain of hurts. When I felt angry at my husband, I would pretend it was all okay and get on with my day, only to lose my temper a few weeks later over a list of stored-up offenses. Even when I would have a dream day with my people all around me, if any happiness or joy sprang up, I felt a tinge of guilt because other things were getting ignored that needed my attention. I was always telling myself why I shouldn't feel some way. And then I'd push it all down and go back to my day. The downside? Nobody knew what was actually going on with me. Nobody. Including myself. We can't go on like this. A couple of years ago, I fell into an emotional pit that I wasn't sure how to emerge from. That season was actually the catalyst for my writing this book. Like so many people, I came out on the other side of the pandemic, unsure how to thrive in a world that was so chaotic and unpredictable. One evening, I looked at Zach and said, I can't do this anymore. Something is wrong. Really wrong. And while I don't have words to explain it, I can't go on this way. I was numb. Work and kids and life were demanding, and surviving a pandemic with its insecurities, and unknowns had left us all a little rung out. I was tired, but I wasn't mad. I wasn't sad. I wasn't enraged. I wasn't annoyed. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel anything. That's what was wrong. I remember sitting in a chair most mornings, alone with my Bible, open on my lap. I love reading my Bible. I've always loved God's Word. But as I'd sit there hoping for inspiration, my heart felt distant and cold. I knew something wasn't right and that I needed to figure it out, but the tangle felt impossible to undo. My stomach would turn, my chest would get tight, my shoulders would hunch forward, and often I'd audibly sigh. These were all signs of emotions undealt with, but I didn't know that. Also, what I didn't realize then, but I'm starting to grasp, is that I was in the best possible position, which was there in the presence of God where the only feeling I seemed capable of was simple desire to heal and grow. If collectively we were stressed out before the pandemic, then we're way past meltdown status now. Either we've resigned ourselves to living numb. How am I? Fine. Really, I'm good. So good. I'm good. I'm fine. And you? Or we have handed over the steering wheel of our lives to our wild feelings and keep crashing into things as a result. I get it. Truly, I do. Maybe you, like me, shut down any time a feeling starts to head your direction. But perhaps you are on the other end of the spectrum, feeling so many feelings every minute that you can't imagine how on earth you're supposed to make sense of them. We all feel differently. And I want to say that wherever you fall on that spectrum, it makes sense. And we aren't all that different. We have feelings, and we're trying to figure out what to do with them. Two years ago, when I felt like my heart had shut down, I decided that I'd give anything to feel again, to experience emotions once more. I didn't want to just survive. I wanted to feel. I wanted to be elated after having a great conversation with friends I adore. I wanted to tear up upon hearing the beginning beats of how great thou art in church. I wanted to feel even the emotions of frustration and grief if it meant feeling human again. Numbness serves a purpose for a season. It does. Like the temporary shock I experienced when Zach was first hospitalized. It protects us from feeling everything that's hard all at once. It keeps us afloat when a tsunami of emotion gathers in our lives. It buys us a little time when we probably shouldn't be making big decisions when the best thing we can do is wait. Which is most likely why so many of us dealt with emotional numbness coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. How were we supposed to process all that had unfolded in early 2020 without totally losing our minds? So much confusion. So much fear. So much death. It was a lot. Going numb was our collective safety net, the thing that kept us from all simultaneously hitting the ground. Like I say, such numbness was a gift. For a time, anyway. Until it became the thing keeping us closed off from ourselves and our emotions, even after the world reopened. Years ago, I came across the 18th century revivalist preacher, Jonathan Edwards, personal resolutions for his life. In the same way that you or I might make a New Year's resolution that drives our behavior for that year, or at least until February, if we're like most people, Edwards wrote lifelong resolutions, which he reviewed once weekly, that reminded him of who he wanted to be, of the existence he wanted to pursue. There were 70 of these resolutions. And number six was this resolved to live with all my might while I do live. It seems like such an obvious objective, doesn't it? Living while we live? But you've probably noticed that it's really, really difficult to live with all your might when you're settling for apathetic and numb. Apathetic and numb aren't living at all. Stay in that space very long and you'll miss your life. And nobody wants to do that. To live is to feel. And to feel is to live. Think about it. Have you ever had the experience of a family member telling a story about something that happened when you were two or three years old? And try as you might, you just can't remember that event. You were alive. You were present. The situation was impactful to other people who were there. But you have no recollection of what happened and why it mattered. Why? Because that memory isn't attached to any emotion for you. Emotion is how we experience life. Emotion is how we remember what happened. Brain scans show that emotions directly trigger a response in the part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala boosts memory encoding by enhancing attention and perception, say researchers from the Queensland Brain Institute, and can help memory retention by triggering the release of stress hormones, such as adrenaline and cortisol, to boost arousal. In other words, emotion is what makes events count. If I asked you to describe a time during your childhood when you felt sad or mad or ridiculously happy or left out or admired or disappointed or afraid or extra confident, my guess is that you could come up with a detailed story. You would start telling me about crashing on your roller skates and ripping up your knee or about whirling on the merry-go-round at your neighborhood playground as you stared at the clouds whirling by above, or about overhearing your parents arguing in the next room about what day Uncle Gene said he was coming to visit, or about the first time you got highlights and how that new look made you feel the next day at school. Lead with emotion and the memories flow. That is why it's so damaging to kids to ignore, minimize, or reject altogether their feelings. To feel is to live and to live is to feel In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, pastor and author Pete Scazzaro wrote, when we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Without feelings, there is no life. I'm writing this book not only to help us feel again, but also to help us start living again. With all our might to live.